of the Trilby and we're all in the house today looking glamorous and gorgeous so um, I'm a big wine lover as many people know about me and so not just wine but basically black owned business and that's not just black owned business that's in the UK but what can we import from everywhere else whether that be America whether that be Africa because of course we want to get closer to Africa and we know that we have some great wine and great produce coming from Africa. So how can we not get it? Anyway, that's the topic of this week. But over to you, Sandra Goo. Is it Sandra Goo or Sandra Go? Goo Go. <laughs> Come hey, you on, said Tiki Tok earlier on. <laughs> <laughs> In another show, we had Tiki Tok. I think it was Sandra Gio. Oh, Sandra Gio. Yeah. There you go. It's much more Italian yeah, sounding. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what... Sandra Goo. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't quite have the same ring. No, absolutely not. I'll take that back. <laughs> What's been happening? What you've been doing? What's happening and shuffling? Oh, I guess my observation for the week. Recently, I attended the Grammy Award winning Kabaka Pyramid. Kabaka who? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Kabaka Pyramid. Okay. He won the Grammy this year for Best Reggae Artist. Okay. Yeah. Ah. Um, so he came to Bristol. Ooh. Yeah, saw him at the Trinity. He's amazing, yeah, amazing artist. Um, get there and I was representing. I was like, wait a minute, where is <gasps> everyone? Where are we? Where are we? Trinity. Stop yeah. it. Seriously, it was about 10% of yeah. we. Yeah, I'd been in, to something yeah, like that at Trinity. In the room. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on with reggae music? And um, the supporting artist was a young, young white woman. She was the first dub DJ in Bristol. A young girl, probably looked under 30, okay. doing her dub thing. And I was, me and my friend was there thinking, okay, something ain't feeling Being right. cultural appropriation uh, is what it is. Yeah. Sister, sister, here is <laughs> sister. I'm joking. Hold, hold your horses. <laughs> yeah, hold, hold your horses. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, um, the, during the last few weeks, Josh Shaka has um passed. Mm. There was something I, I read about him that he'd written. So speaking back in 2014, he said when people left Africa mm. for the Caribbean, all they could bring with them was their music, their songs, and their memories from home. So over the years. This is all that people had to keep them together. And it got me thinking, what is going on with reggae music? Because I've been to a few gigs where I don't see us there. Yeah. Is it the ticket price? Kabaka was cheap. Kabaka, Grammy Award winning, £14 I paid to see him. So it oh, wasn't, no, yeah, so it wasn't, expensive. yeah, it ain't like £100 to see Beyonce. Mm. You know, so it's reasonably priced. But it did get me thinking, what's going on a little bit? And it's back to, and it'd be interesting when you start talking about your subject matter, us supporting our culture. Mm. And if we're not careful, 
it all start to slowly drip away. And I know what will happen with some of these venues. So I'm thinking like this young white woman, she's going to be more palatable mm. to come in and be allowed in. Whereas mm. perhaps some of our sound system people that have been playing this sort of music for years and years won't be allowed in because they're going to be bringing trouble. They're going to be all this per- perception stuff. True. Mm. So it's back to our culture being highly desired, wanted, accepted, but we're not. Mm. But, you know, what are we? We're not helping. Yeah, we're not helping the thing because we're not supporting it. Yeah. So, we're, you know, so I'm sat there thinking, whoa. Mm. And it isn't about, I don't want people to come and enjoy the music. Of course I do. But I'm just wondering, how come we're not has, enjoying our own music? Has, has reggae, have people moved on from reggae, maybe? To what? Anything else. I don't, well, you'd have to say what, what the other, other thing is. Well, you've got soca. We do. And we have um, Afrobeat. Yeah, I think Afrobeat is huge. Right. Yes, yeah, you know, that is huge. But that's a particular generation, maybe. Is it? Well, I love, I haven't said I love, a, bit, I love a bit, little bit of Afrobeat. But that's, not, but that's not everyone. No. Yeah. So but, I suppose it might be a generational thing in terms of reggae. See, I, I, I wasn't part of the... I'm a cheesy quaver, you see. So I, I cheesy quaver, cheesy quaver, old raver. Yellow eagle. <laughs> <laughs> I love me a bit of yellow. <laughs> no, I was, I was in my in my ute mm-hmm. in the early days. What was it 85, 86, 87? Chasing up and down the M25 with a brick phone looking for the illegal party. Of course, yes, okay, raver. That's what I mean. Yeah, okay. No, I was there with So you. hard beats. Okay, techno, Detroit Te- techno. Well, more, Dance. more, I'm more house. Uh, okay, I'm more really. Detroit techno. It's, it's, all, it's all about the beats yeah. and the bass. Of course, of course. And, you know, you throw a bit of hardcore mm. in there and I'm very happy. So I was never... I was never a reggae girl. Not even really. when you were growing up. Did you hear it growing up? No, my house was full of Motown. Okay. Motown, not reggae. Motown and Calypso mm. were the things that I grew up on. So Maybe. the Four Tops, all of that stuff, steeped in that. And, and Jim Reeves to and, top it off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, why? Well, yeah. a healthy dose of Jim Reeves and Louis Armstrong. Yes, but why yeah. Jim Reeves? I have no idea. Mm. Looking back at it now, my gosh. Why Jim yeah. Reeves? Yeah. What, what but happened? reggae was not played in my house. So I should explain, my mm. house was a, a Bajan house, which means my parents were from Barbados. Mm. So reggae wasn't really part of their culture. Uh, it's that whole thing, that whole segregation of people from the Caribbean. Well, it's just different cultures mm-hmm. in the Caribbean, and people tend to think that you know all black people like one thing, but mm. you know the, the Caribbean's a very rich place yes. culturally, and um, yeah, they just didn't ever really play reggae. Mm. I even remember Lord Kitchener. Uh, well, I'll be playing <laughs> some of that. I can tell you. <gasps> oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> well. This is it. I mean, for me, a history of black music is a history of black music, whether that is Cuban, whether that yeah. is Sister Rosetta Tharp, whether mm. that is Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald. It is, you know, or Buju Banton. Mm. It's a history of black music. So yeah. uh, I was really fortunate. My dad used to have a massive record collection. So we heard quite a few things, including Jim Reeves. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and Elvis. Or L is whatever his name was, oh, that mm-hmm. bloke. Who is he? Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it is 
as Sandra was saying earlier on about going out to gigs, and that's something that, you know, and I think even in me, I was like sort of a bit of umbrage when it comes to ticket prices, even though it's quite cheap. I tend not to want to go. But obviously supporting black business. And we've all had the Black Pound more recently and support, you know, you the whole Black in. Pound. You haven't yeah. checked in with me. I've not. No, no. You don't care, do you? Well, I'll ask. Go ahead. Thank Black. you. Go on. Spend, tell me about your spending habits. <laughs> <laughs> I am well. <laughs> I'm glad to know. And all is well with the world. <laughs> What's been exciting for me this week? Uh, I think I mentioned it last time. Spring. Spring. Not that I've been out walking, because you know me, I don't walk. (laughs) (laughs) But I am tempted to knit down to a little place called Nightingale Valley, here in lovely Bristol, which I'm ashamed to say I didn't know existed until I kind of moved nearby. Um, But it's beautiful. And the mornings are light, and I'm a morning exerciser, not an after-work exerciser. You leave it till after work, and it's not going to happen. So I have <laughs> I have thought about it, which is a big step. <laughs> <laughs> is this just sort of looking wistfully out of the kitchen window? <laughs> the first step. I promise you, that's the first step. Lies. <laughs> It's an important step. <laughs> now that I've thought about it, I oh. now need to move to doing it. Have you got the correct uh, shoes? I have got the perfect shoes for it. Lovely. Yep. So I'm thinking that next week, because mm. um, I love Easter was just, I think that's what this is about. Mm. Easter for me was just, it felt like spring. Yeah. Felt like hope, felt like renewal. The one mm. day that we got of sunshine. I'm, so I'm feeling renewed. Lovely. And I've done lots of reflecting and planning and all of that sort of thing. So now I want to get um, up close and personal with nature. Wow. (laughs) 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 Having having meditated on what it would be like to walk, (laughs) I am now going to try it. Wow. Wow. Thank you. This is an able-bodied woman, by the way. Thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Okay, I'm going to picture that later on. You Thank just you. walking around in Nightingale Valley. Valley. I'm going to write that down. There you go. I recommend it. Beautiful. <laughs> That's one of the wonderful things about living in the southwest is that you mm. are not far from mm. the countryside. Definitely. So um, this week's topic is uh, supporting black-owned or black businesses. And not just here in the UK, because, yeah, you know, you can buy... As many packets of the whipped shea butter cream. Mm. I would suggest you get some from Sandra Gordon because she does it for herself, but I haven't noticed her selling any. But, you know, um, but, you know, you can get as many products. You can get jewellery, you can get like, loads of things covered in African fabric and mm. all the rest of it. But digging deep into black-owned, for me, it came when I came across an article about Ghanaian wine. And um, and bought a bottle uh, of uh, Amandla, which is a South African female-owned wine brand. And I thought, why can't I buy more of this? I mean, I'm a huge wine drinker. Well, I wouldn't say huge. I mean, I have You said it, Sam. I just a little. <laughs> you enjoy it. I do. Why? With yeah. cheese. Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, I do like wine and my preference would always be French wine. Um, but I, I, I noticed that I do notice new sort of varieties and stuff like that. And I try and keep real by buying certain types of wine, mm. not just any old, you know, bottle. Uh, but it really intrigued me when I saw, you know, this Ghanaian wine. And how do I support these vineyards in Africa that are black owned and trying to sell wine, but we can't export them to the UK because we are not wine distributors. Mm. But not just wine, there's clothing as well. There's homewares as well, where you cannot get it on the internet. If you look at the shape of black women, and we're not like straight down and straight up, we are curvy people. Um, it took years to fit into a pair of jeans before lycra jeans came out and stretch jeans and those awful leggings that we mm -hmm. <laughs> became so attached to. Yeah. But if you look in America and you look at what Beyonce wears or, you know, or some of the normal fashion that people are wearing, especially for black women, we can't get over here. Mm. It's a struggle to find clothing that fits us. You know, yeah. unless you buy something and then take it to a tailor and exactly. get it altered mm. to fit you. Mm. So I don't know what your experiences are or how you feel about not being able to purchase the things that you would like to purchase. It would be easier to purchase a bottle of wine from France or Spain. Mm. Why is it so difficult to purchase a bottle of wine from, say, Ghana or any other place in the world? I, I don't know the answer. I don't know why it's more difficult. I mean, you know... I'm sure Brexit plays a role in anyone trying to import anything into this country from anywhere. However, I don't specifically know why we aren't, we don't, we're not seeing Ghanaian wines on our shelves. That's a good question. Mm. I think, yeah, I try as much as possible to um, support anyone, any minority or global majority, I should say, led business, because um, I think it is important black and brown economy is very important so i also like wine like you I like red wine and i'd be very happy to see in fact you've introduced me to something tonight which i didn't know existed which is just fantastic apart from having a really brilliant label because i am i am that pathetic i will go for a label i'm not a connoisseur like you however <laughs> When it comes to clothing, I really like what you're saying there because I've given up. Mm. I have literally given up trying to find something that I want to wear in mainstream shops um, in on our high street or in our shopping malls. Now, I don't do malls and I'm not a great shopper, mm. I have to admit. So the thought of, um, you know, being inside somewhere for hours on end just fills me with dread. But I would like to be able to go somewhere and find something that suits my personality, has colour, has cut. The cut is so important. That suits my frame because, you know, I'm not a nitty bitty straight up. I'm not. I'm curvy. Mm. And of a size. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I, you know, it would be wonderful to be. And it's depressing quite frankly, to go to some of the major department stores. And I, I've had some occasions where I needed to find something quite formal. And I've literally come out of these places depressed. Mm. There is nothing there for me. 
And actually, what my younger sister and I have decided, she started making things for me. This is it. This is where we go. We go to a, a dressmaker or a tailor and we have something bespoke made. And I think, you know, that's the answer for me right now is that I'll I'll have something made or altered. Um, but, yeah, it, it, uh, uh, things like... Um, so I live somewhere now where there's a, a really good high street. I can't tell you how excited I was to see a butcher's. <laughs> I mean, that's how bad it's got. Yeah. A real butcher's. Yeah, a proper And one. a real greengrocer's. Mm. So it's not just about black lead, it's about independent mm-hmm. me. Um, and... I mean, we'll come on to the black farmer in a bit. Yes. Because, you know, there are some black led and then there are other black leads that you might want to support. But for me, I, I, I think it's really important. And I do not understand why they're not getting through. So, you know, Levi Roots is a really good example of someone who's managed to break the concrete ceiling mm. and get his products mainstreamed through our supermarkets, etc., etc. With help and support from, um, you know, all sorts of amazing people. Um, and I really, I really salute that. But he's he stands out as a really exceptional case. And um, that, you know, we have fantastic chef in Bristol, Glenn, and all sorts of people that make amazing food. They get nowhere. No. Why? Mm. I just don't know. So... I'm there to support it, but maybe there's something about how things are promoted, how um, difficult it is to work to scale, because when you get to Levi Roots type of scale, you need a lot of capital behind you and you need a lot of kit um, around that whole operation. That's not just, you know, Levi's not cooking in this kitchen anymore. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, so... Um, uh, something about whether people of colour have access to the resources and the finance that is necessary to scale their businesses to a level where they are available to us in mainstream shops and operations. Um, and we all know that it's not a level playing field as no. far as access to finance, um, You know, whether it's business loans or social investors or whatever it is. Um, and there's a lot of work going on in Bristol to try and, and, and make that more equitable. Um, but it's a long history of inequity. Yeah, and, you know, as someone who's um, dabbled in uh, <laughs> in terms of selling products, and I know people that have products and have tried to sell them, you know, it's challenging. And um, I work with some creatives in Ghana, and um, they've got... one. Well, I remember when I met them kind of probably first 10 years ago, there was that problem of them wanting access to be able to sell their goods outside of Africa and all the barriers, you know, the barriers within their own governments just trying to get stuff through. So it was great for them to have someone like me who they could give their products to me, hopefully to come and sell in the West because there is that real issue of trying to get things through. And, you know, you go to anywhere in Africa and the creativity and the talent and the workmanship that's produced out there, but it's stuck. You know, they can't do anything with it. They can't move out, you know, in terms of borders and, and everything. And, um, you know, I, I think one of the saddest things that I saw when I went to Ghana was just in terms of how 
the trade has just been eroded away by cheap imports from China. Mm. Even things like fabric and material. Really? Yeah, fabrics. You you know, you get fake. Traditional African yeah, fabric. Yeah. yeah, but you had that with the Dutch. You had that, yeah. you had Dutch. Yeah, you, know. you, you had that. But there's even more, because they're even cheaper than the Dutch stuff. Some of the mm. ju- Dutch African fabrics are quite expensive, mm. you know. Um, but then you've got the really cheap imp- imports. So, you know, there were factories being closed in Ghana because, you know, they just couldn't compete. And even things like traditional things like kente weaving, you know, there's a lot of fake stuff around. That it's just a print. Yeah. It's not the actual mm. fabric. Yeah, yeah. And, and mud cloth as well was something that traditionally 10 years ago, everyone was after the traditional Marley mud cloth. Yeah. <laughs> now now the, the print is everywhere. So, yeah. and again, it gets diluted down in terms of the quality. Mm. So the industry just gets eroded away. Um, so that's the challenge. And, and the other thing on top of that is within Africa, it, you know, it's the dumping ground of all secondhand clothes and that kind of killed their own market as well. Mm. So even African people not wanting their own African clothes because one, it's more expensive or you can't get the genuine thing. And then you've got all these cheap imports that are coming over. Mm. Um, you know, the secondhand goods market is just horrendous you know going to Ghana and someone trying to sell me a pair of Marks and Spencer's jeans is just like not on you know I'm, I'm looking I'm looking African clothes here I'm, I'm just not looking secondhand goods Marks you know <laughs> yeah you know yeah I'm English I'm gonna want Marks or, or Next or something you know um so I think that's that's a challenge so yeah I think that that's the shameful bit is being able to get products and the challenge and you know i've done so many kind of exhibitions in the uk and we're we're all stuck in kind of either community centers or and the trouble when you do those kind of markets people then don't see the value Mm -hmm. and the time and the craftsmanship that's gone into something that's hand produced you know and ask any black traders people always want to you know the price is 10 pound no can you can you make it five? You go into a barter situation. Mm. So it's that value piece, you know, mm. and sometimes we are not valuing buying our own because there's a mistrust. There's a whole load of other stuff that goes on around the kind of black economy and who's supporting it, you know. So even things like wine, and and it's funny, wine is an interesting one because I think wine can be seen as very white. Mm. So, you know, the whole concept of, the wine industry people probably think wine from africa really you know there's probably a snobbery that goes on yeah, they've terms... been selling wine from, from south, south africa, africa for years yeah. you know that was part of the downfall of the apartheid yeah. regime they stopped buying south african yeah, wine and fruit i've gone to south, south africa the, the wineries are white so that you know there's a lot of white wineries mm. in south africa so of when you're course. talking about the country and then we're talking about you know we're talking about the people and who's making it so but it's interesting to, I didn't know that Ghana yeah, produced in terms wine. of wine. Mm. But there is that going to be that perception about Ghana, mm, really? You're going to have to get over some of that snobbery, I'd imagine, mm-hmm. when it comes to wine. And that was the case with English wine. Do you remember years ago? Years yeah. and years ago, probably talking It's probably still years. the same with most people. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the, the very thought of an English wine was like, well, are you serious? We can't grow we can't grow the, the, the grapes here for a good wine, but there are some serious mm. producers. In so exactly. In so Bristol. it's possible yeah. to get over that because if it's good wine, they're on the market now. But white or black, does racism yeah, you might get over the English piece because it's coming it, from England. I was just gonna say there oh. is yeah, you then have a, a multiple of barriers um because mm. it's coming from somewhere which is 
predominantly black, perhaps. Um, I'd love to try a Ghanaian wine. I would love it. Well, you could love it. You got one for your housewarming gift, Thank which is a South you. African wine, which is produced mm. by women, and I'm, I'm I'm sure I read that all of the women were black women who were making the wine, which is brilliant, ones. exactly. And I think, and that's what you know. And I will continue to buy that wine because mm. I know that that benefits the people it, who are making point. it. Yeah. But um, but the Ghanaian wine, which I looked and researched to try to you know, to get some bottles myself, um. As I'm not uh, an importer of wine, I cannot buy that. And I just think that, like everything else that I see and that I want, mm. I can't get it because of that that barrier of trade with African and Caribbean countries. Now, I, I do you think it's the same in the US? Because my gut feeling is no. they have a lot more access to. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Definitely. So there's something about uh, maybe uh, trade agreements or something around that I think stops the stuff coming here. And also our market is much smaller, isn't it? So I don't know whether it's a case of actually... But that's st- about promotion, isn't it? It's like anything. Mm. It's like if it's promoted well, mm. you will get the buyers for it. Yeah. Because that's the same... It's with- true, because black American fashion... In terms of hip hop style and all that sort of stuff, that easily came over here. We've got shops selling it. Exactly. Here. Exactly. Independent shops. So, yeah, that's, it, that's true. the element, isn't it? Yeah. Trainers. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, the price yeah. of trainers is ridiculous. And but because it's associated with cool yeah. black hip hop streetwear, mm. then people are going to pay that money for it. Right. Okay. So it, you are. Yeah. yeah. You'd probably have to get some well known restaurant or chef. Or someone like that that suddenly discovered it. And Saturday kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's true. It's, you know, yeah. that person that does the wine review yeah. on there. You need talking s- about a Ghanaian wine. Yeah. So that's what you need. Okay, you need that. We, we need the to media. write to them. Don't worry, mm. I'm writing. Thank you. It's going to start. But it's funny what you were saying, Sandra, Sangio, <laughs> about um, uh, what's happening in Africa uh, around, you know, their, their traditional fabrics and cloth and et cetera, et cetera, because it reminded me of an article I read a while back about the high, uh, the high-level brands and how they had taken uh, African designs and African prints and all sorts of things. And we're talking, you know, the Louis Vuittons mm. and the Marc Jacobs, et cetera, et cetera. And these things are shooting down their runways, mm. but they're not credited. No. They're not credited to the African tribes or to the African cultures from whence they came so there is an element of that. I mean, it was always thus. We borrow from each other's cultures all the time. All the time. So this isn't, you know, I made a joke earlier about cultural appropriation. It, we do that as human beings. We borrow, we, we like things, we take them, we, we make them our own. But maybe there is something really important about, uh, yeah, if you're going to do that, you're going to do that. If you can take a cloth or a design and uh, do something with it, the missing part is actually telling the story mm. and actually accrediting or, or making sure people know where it came from. Mm. What's the history of this thing? Mm. I haven't designed this myself. This actually is Enderbele mm. or whatever mm. it is. I mm. remember uh, we lived at a house in Easton and I had a lovely white wall <laughs> and I wanted Enderbele art. <laughs> I mean, I was pregnant at the time, so there's a lot of hormone stuff going on. Mm. And I got a paintbrush. And I did it, and I flipping loved it. 
I loved it. I had a piece of African art produced by myself. I'm in no way African. <laughs> well, I'm African ultimately, but you know, I'm from the Caribbean. But it just felt so good. And if someone came round, they would say, oh, that's really interesting. And then I would go, did you know <laughs> this is from the this tribe of women, the end of the women, who yeah. do this particular style of art? And I talked about it. And that's the missing element, is that they're not talking about where their inspiration comes from. Hmm. I think as well as talking about it, financially recompensing people. And I think that's the that's the thing with... I guess keeping certain countries and communities down, you take and you take and you take and there's nothing given back. Um, there's too much of that going on. So I think, you know, all these ideas stealing, you know, and the, they'll have people in villages, you know, making things, making bags, making straw bags, making all these things that then end up, you know, in high street shops. Or, yeah, a lot of money and they're paying them peanuts. A body shop. Yeah, that's but it, well, life, it's, it? body shop is probably not a good sort of gauge on that because at least Anita Roderick, whatever her name was, she actually did give back it. I don't know how Anita much. Roderick, yeah. There you go. Um, but Topshop were caught out, and they weren't just caught out with respect to you know any cultural stuff. They were caught out in terms of uh, literally stealing any other artist's work mm. and putting it on the T-shirt and selling it. Yeah. I'm sure there were some high-profile court cases where... And I remember talking to... So my sister is a knitwear designer. And I remember, um, you know, she's designed some amazing stuff over the years. And I said, you've got to get that patented. And she said, no, it's just not worth it. You can't patent this stuff. Uh, And the amount of uh, stress and, and, you know, trouble it takes. When you're a designer... You almost design knowing that you have to let it go. Mm. Um, You can't own it because somewhere, somewhere in the world has designed, she literally designed stitches. New stitch, I mean, I, you know, I can't even (laughs) sew on a button. (laughs) (laughs) Completely went over my head, all that (laughs) skill. But she will design a stitch for hand knitting. And I'd say, you've got to get a pattern, you've got to protect your work and all the rest of all about your IP and all this sort of stuff. And she goes, no, it doesn't work like that in design world. Mm. You know, things flow and people use this and people use that. You can't prove mm. that your idea is completely unique. Mm. But when you look at things like specific cultures, Maori culture, there's something really tangible about the difference a Maori piece of art is, mm. you know what I mean. Same with some of the African art, and mm. I think that's a different. That's a different thing, mm. and it should be. It should be not acknowledged. I think, you know, as I say, full of shaped women, curvy women, all the rest of it, and it's not just what you're not able to fit in. It. I mean, I hate going to, I hate clothes shopping. Yeah. I hate clothes shopping with a passion because mm-hmm. I'm normally fighting in the dressing room mm-hmm. over the clothing size. And I know that you've changed over the years. Um, so I can fit into nothing. If it says it's a 14 or a 16 or whatever, I'm still not going to get into it. So I'm up in the sort of tent region of clothing. Mm-hmm. But also the colours. Oh, tell me about it. The colours don't pop the same. So if you go... I mean, I wanted to get like oranges and no, yellows and stuff like that. It. 
but the colours are like flat mm. colours. Mm. So when you try them on, they they don't pop in the same way as well. Mm. So when I look at magazines or something, not necessarily fashion magazines, but if I look at a magazine and it's got a woman in an outfit, I'm thinking, that's the yellow I want. Mm. Why can't I get that mm. yellow in the, you know on mm. the high street? Because it's so formulated, but there is no way I could go on to. I could just type it randomly into a search engine, not even going on any of the platforms that normally sell crap to people Mm. and still not be able Mm. to get what I want. Mm. What is that about? I, okay. So like I said, my sister's in this, in this design world and, um, ever since, um, Edward Enninfold took over as, as lead at Vogue, she took out a subscription. It's brilliant because he has really changed Vogue and representation, which is fantastic. And so she's given me, um, when we were kids, like really young, 15, um, we would buy, <laughs> spend our pocket money on Vogue and Harper's because we were looking at you know, all, these, all these fantastic houses. Yes. And then the fantastic mm. clothes. And um, so she took a subscription out and she, she hadn't kept up with reading them all and she gave me half a dozen of them. I don't have time to read Vogue. And I'd never buy it because the, uh, the chances of me parting with that much money for a magazine, <laughs> really slim. Talk really slim. I bought Vogue the other day for the first time in How years. How much did it cost you? Two quid. Why? How did I you? I don't know. It was a special offer. Two pounds. Really? I thought, Amy, it's the one with the three women. Wow. And they're all yeah. big. You know, curvy women. And I He's thought, been brilliant, hasn't and I he? Thought, yeah. Oh my god, it's two pounds. I cannot oh. not buy this. But what I discovered looking through, because I haven't looked at Vogue for decades, I'm looking through and I'm like, oh, I like that. Oh, I like that. And I like that. I thought, oh god, here we go. The high street is not for us, darlings. <laughs> we need to go much, much higher <laughs> up the line. <laughs> Then we start to see colour. Yeah. Um, and I think it's something that's changed about the high street because, lit- honestly, when I say I'm depressed when I go into these places, I really mean it. It's stuff that I wouldn't have got at a jumble sale. Mm. I really wouldn't have picked it up at a jumble sale. But when I look at these magazines, I think, oh, yeah, I would wear, I would wear that. You know, Poochie, fantastic colours. It's going to cost me thousands one go to <laughs> garment. Yeah. But that's where mm. the the stuff that, you know, I would wear, the colours and the cut and all the rest of it, it's just moved into that sort of sphere, which is really unfair because it's inaccessible mm. to an ordinary working woman. Well, my but, girl over here is always a stunning dresser. Oh, I wouldn't know about that, Sam. Oh, please. <laughs> But, but you know she on those big nights out. Have you seen? Those? I know. I can't wear dresses like she wears no. dresses. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I I think um the whole kind of retail sector has just been decimated since COVID and the high street. Everything's just disappeared. You know, the high streets probably weren't the best before, but at least you could go there and find something in particular shops. You know, and the big department stores. There's just nothing now, and um. Yeah, it's just a shadow. I, I and it's interesting. I, I still go downtown sometimes, and town's busy. I'm thinking, well, not what are you buying what? There's that, Sam. I'm also thinking, not everybody wants to be sat at home online shopping. No. You know that that isn't for everybody. 
And then there's still that feel that, you know, you're wanting to go and feel and try stuff on. And it's the whole hassle of all of that. Mm. But it's funny. I found an, um, I found an article though, ladies. Mm. So there's a new DC strip mall that's dedicated to black owned businesses. Ooh. Unfortunately, like I said, you're going to have to go all the way to America to see it. Right. But, um, uh, a woman called An- oh, Angel Gregero, she's opened a new location for her specialty shop. Um, mm. But she invited other, so she opened a particular shop herself, but she also invited several other black women business owners to mm. join her. Mm. So instead of opening her own brick and mortar, she transformed a 7,500 square foot lot in DC neighborhood to a retail community for local black owned businesses that's what needs to happen yeah that's what needs to so happen. so we just got to, that entrepreneurial yeah, spinach and also collaborating with others in order to absolutely. take that building and mm. turn it into something that pe- a destination yeah a destination because mm. i've seen i've been quite recently to a pop-up um for african designers that's brilliant um in the middle of bristol um i bought Two sets of earrings and something else. I could hardly. It was so small, you couldn't you couldn't pass each other. It was so tiny, but some of the stuff there was beautiful and beautifully mm. made. If I imagine that at scale, yeah, yeah, I'd be there. I'd be there because there are so many creatives. You know, I go to, like I said, I go to quite a few, quite a, I do quite a few exhibitions, and they're from oh. you can get everything from clothing. To shoes, oh, to lampshades. Yeah, lampshades, skincare. Yeah. That, we're doing our own thing in t- terms of skincare. So, Everything, hair, creams, the whole lot. So this is about scale. This is about mm. scale and destination, making it attractive enough to make people want to come there um, and staying, being there more than just as a pop-up, Absolutely. but regularly so that I think, oh, actually, hmm, I might... I think I could probably do with another trouser suit or something. Mm. Let me pop down knowing that they're going to be there. Mm. But like um, Sandra said, that that's all about having the finances to do that exactly. because it takes time to build these businesses yeah. and people haven't got that loyalty piece. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, there is, that's why you have the pop-up and they disappear. Mm. You know, being able to have bricks and mortar and pay for business rates and everything else that goes with it. Mm you need a lot of support and yeah. sometimes the support just isn't there why? but the talent is there why do we think that the support isn't there I w- the scale the problem with the scale stuff is that you'll get a uh, people start comparing you with primark or they compare you with a cream that they can buy in Superdrug that you don't even know what's even in the cream which is a ridiculous yeah. comparison so really. that's the problem people start weighing up and oh it's too expensive for that candle that's 15 pounds or it's too expensive for that cream that's 20 pounds not looking at the value and what's in there and the time so there's a real big thing around that so sorry i was going to say answer me this we have an area of bristol which is very diverse east bristol and east bristol has a very very long road called stapleton road which is full of diverse and independent shops why have we not turned that into a place for all of this sort of thing to happen so that it, it does become an attraction and it is a destination for not just people of colour, for everybody? You want to buy a piece of African cloth, go to Stapleton Road. Mm. You want to buy African jewellery, go to Stapleton Road. Why has that not happened? Because there are plenty of shops there, plenty of units. Mm. Most of them are food. Has to be said. It is. That's all that's not. Well, most of them 
appear to be food maybe but that's a whole other conversation well, but when is because most of the properties along that road have been bought by private people right and I mean, I inquired years ago when I first got here, because when I first got here, what I wanted to do was have a business. Right. And there was a, a post office, I believe. I mean, I wasn't prepared to spend any money at that time because it didn't have that much. But anyway, <laughs> there was a post office on Chelsea Road. Yeah. So I wanted to have that. And I was had, you know, imagined of what it was being. I think everyone had talked about another building down. I'm not going to mention that one. Mm. But it's owned by somebody. And mm. they were saying, oh, you have to buy us out of our lease and all this sort of rubbish. Mm. Mm. But I think most of the properties on Stapleton Road, and I think with most people will find in any other area, are either owned by a business or a um, a landlord mm-hmm. who is not willing to hire that out or lease it out at a cheaper rate to somebody. Right. So unless there are like council buildings mm-hmm. where you can get a business plan together and approach the council and say, look, we want to try something here, have a pop-up business, um, let's see how it goes and get some sort of peppercorn rent. I think that's the fear and that's the barrier so it's it's about having the seed funding and and the capital to be able to to mm. to launch something, which does take a really solid business plan, and and a, a vision, yeah, and a realistic approach to your business. As in it's it's you know it's got to be, it's got to be a vision that that goes more than a year, and then convincing these investors, whether they're social or or non-social investors, that actually. You're serious about your business and you're here to stay and actually you're going to make a difference. Yeah. And having them hear that, though, because pretty much I would suspect that most businesses run by people of colour have been to the bank and had a rejection. That's not going to happen. So it's a, so it kind of makes me think, and I did mention this um, to you privately, didn't I? Where are... The black philanthropists. Mm. Where are the black social investors? Where are the black and brown people who have money to invest in businesses? A bit like Dragon's Den. Um, why don't we know about them? Why It feels to me like they're, they're quite hidden. Mm. Um, it's not obvious. And maybe we... Do, do you know what? I'm just having an idea. Maybe we need to do a... a <laughs> An alternative to Dragon's Den. <laughs> well, finding finding the people first. Well, exactly, and then having people come and pitch because Definitely. It, because the specific problem of it not being equitable access to finance, access to capital is not equitable. We know that. We know that. That you know, there've been many reports that have said for people of color. Um, it's much more difficult to persuade a bank or any other investor to to part with the money. Mm. Um, so how do we get around that? How do we make a difference? Mm. Well, I think, especially in Bristol, I know that they've had little groups where they help people. I know that you've done mentoring things as well. Sandra Geo. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, and it is teaching people, giving people that encouragement to... You know, this is my idea. How can I get my idea into reality or make my idea into reality? This is what I want to do. And having those those tools to build your blocks into yeah. making your dream into a reality. Yeah. But also 
finding the people that will invest in that if you've got the correct I think there's know. plenty of help yeah there isn't plenty of money no well yeah that is the challenge I think um you can spend so much time helping people but then it's that next step yeah and the long-term sustainability but I think there's also something about us coming together and working together on these things I think black businesses traditionally you want very siloed you know don't sometimes don't even ask for help they're just doing stuff and they're not collaborating and we're better in larger numbers mm. you know and I think we need to do a lot more of that mm. I agree Sandra I think there's lots of a lot of course there's black people out there with money yeah. I don't know what it is about them not necessarily wanting to always give us the money and they also always I always feel like there's some barriers you know with someone who's um run events and try to get sponsorship it's not always easy sometimes no. to get money from our people so so yeah i'm gonna go and get money from the even, white corporates even so. from the people that you know have money yeah that's amazing are we are we looking in a smaller pool or are we looking at a wide but as we say we don't know who the, the black philanthropists are so you know if you're looking at people at sort of lenny henry's standard why not why are we not looking at the wider? We know that we've got news readers, we've got people that work in newspapers, we've got people that work in media, we've got people that work in all sorts of areas. I mean, we were talking about, you know, the woman that's the head of John Lewis. Mm. You know, so it's like we know that we know we've got, but you know, we've got black QCs, we've got black judges, we've got black people that are working in all of these other areas, but you know. In I would say in America, you would probably think that they're probably more well-known because mm. of something like Forbes list or whatever. Mm. And even those people that are on Forbes list, why are we not tapping them and saying, yeah. actually, I'm doing this. Would you like to get involved or donate some money? Maybe we need to be more. Well, you know, things emerge like the Black Professionals Network, um, which is an interesting thing. Um, so I think there is, and I think that was quite deliberate because it, it was recognising that we don't come together in that way. Mm. We don't create these structures and spaces where actually we can collaborate and work in partnership and feed off of one another. And for the good of everybody, you know, elevate where we, where we are. Um, so, yeah, I think more of that is needed. Um, but it is not within our... I don't know, it's not within our way of thinking to naturally do that. And yet mm. others do, other cultures do do it. Which is the challenge. And yeah. I think that, that some of that, there's some bigger issues that we need to solve within our within our, our communities. Mm. And I think sometimes externally people look on us and think, well, I'm not sure if I want to like take a, a punt on you, take a bet on you. What else are you doing? We're not going in there. Sometimes we're not even prepared properly when we're presenting ourselves. So I think there's work, but that isn't everybody. Because there's a lot of people out there that have got great ideas, great talent. They just want the opportunity. Yeah. But it's like you said, how do we create the opportunity Mm. for those people? But but how do we also reach out to those people that have money, that want to engage? So maybe there is a a brokerage somewhere. Yeah. Because there will be black people with money who, who want to support I'm Black sure businesses. they're out there. Yeah, of course. I'm really yeah. frustrated because they can't find a network, an effective network, not yeah. just a network of people. Um, a lady I met um, uh, on the Common Purpose program, Angie, in Birmingham, and she's doing just this. She's she's pulling people together and she's um, creating a platform and, and an event for Black-led businesses. And I think that should be a shining sort of beacon 
for anyone who wants to invest in that way is like look for those things because that's the people coming together and saying yeah we're stronger together and this is what we want to do and we're all doing different things it might be artists might be business people doing various support services whatever it is but actually that's where you focus your attention um but it's letting them know that they exist and in order to let them know that this sort of stuff is going on you need to identify who they are Mm. i want literally a book Mm. or some kind of directory that says you know like our own forbes we've we've tried it and i think i think power list jammy was one of those Mm. remember jammy with the card it is jammy isn't it i'm thinking yeah yeah so and and i remember interviewing her when she first started out and asking her loads of questions about things that I was interested in. Would this be a place where you could find black art and artists? Because, you know, the things that I like, black yeah. art, wine, food, yeah. clothing. And and that was the start of something. And it has grown since then. And I think it's really important to know where to go. Right. To tap into that. Right. Because, you know, wine and art mm. and things that i'm interested clothing mm. materials f- you know fabrics mm. candles whatever it is going to a central place is really important to know mm. that i can buy from yeah. a source that feels wholesome to me yeah rather than going out onto the high street buying habits have changed so yeah you do need to you need that one-stop shop and we need to be place. stepping up to that yeah cool Great. Oh, really good topic. So, um, tree of wisdom, ladies. The tree of wisdom. I feel like we should sing this part. <laughs> the tree of wisdom. There you go, you've sung it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a little jingleette. I'll start off with, San- I'm not going to say Sandra. Sangio. Sangio, there you go. Wow, I think my takeaway um, collaboration, I think, especially what we've been speaking about, we, n- we need to pull together. And support each other. Mm. And I think, and whether that's support in buying, support in creating, support in sustaining. You know, we talk about it a lot. We People, you know, us all coming together, working together, but we don't do it enough. Mm. So that for me is, that's what I'd like to see more of. Mm. Me? Yes. I want to import wine from Ghana. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be able to, if I see it, I want to be able to buy it if I can afford to buy it. But I want to, so whether that's in a one place where I can find it all, um, a directory or whatever, I just want the market to be fairer so I can buy the things that I want to buy and not be excluded because of where it is Mm. in the world and Mm. i think that africa and the caribbean have been excluded from the market and i Mm. think that more needs to be done to make sure that we can purchase as you know as easy as we do going down to the high street Mm. i agree i think that um the global market shouldn't just be available to what do they call them fmcg fast-moving consumer goods the likes of unilever and and all those big corporations that pepper the world with their products they're the ones who are taking advantage of the global market so what about the independent the independent global market there's there we are (laughs) let's launch it (laughs) (laughs) so my little piece of wisdom 
actually, wherever you are, and we've got a few of these in, in Bristol, wherever you are and whoever you are, support your local independent shop. Like I said, I was very excited to see a, 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 a butcher's and a greengrocer's, a proper paper bag greengrocer's. So support independence because if you don't then we lose them to the the big conglomerates and the big you know corporations and you know it's it's funny someone said on my my because i'm on a whatsapp group in my street (laughs) the first time in my life i've ever been on a on a road whatsapp group it's brilliant it's brilliant um but someone on there said uh rather than buy it from amazon Go down the road and see what you can find that's independent. And we have that whole wonderful... I'm so frustrated, have been for years, with Stapleton Road because I think it's a gem. I think it's an economic gem and it's an opportunity that's being wasted because it's in the heart of the most diverse community in the whole of Bristol. And all sorts of cultures exist around Stapleton Road. And what we could do with that as a destination for Bristol is off the scale. If we could just harness it, bring the community together, and it is what you were saying, Sangio, about um, <laughs> it's probably it's tripping off my tongue <laughs> yeah, now, yeah, isn't yeah. it, Sangio? I can't what remember you it. Say, <laughs> about coming together and collaborating, putting aside any differences because there will be differences. We're we're all yeah. different cultures, even though yeah. we're black and brown people, we're different cultures. <laughs> But coming together and seeing the bigger picture. Do you know on that point, San, I think it's the three blackbirds that was on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, d- it's still d- there, yeah. No, they're making plans for it to be an Airbnb, aren't they? Are they? Yeah. Are they? Or, no, no, boutique hotel. A boutique hotel. <laughs> on <laughs> Stapleton Road. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But you know what that means. Yeah. So the same way is... The big G. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So I... I, I so I remember someone saying it, and I was I parked outside it the other, and there is like a a, a bit of a plaque. So, so watch the space on Stapleton right. Road. Yeah, good luck. I th- with that. Yeah, I think if no, I think if you watch out plans for the next five years, mm. I think it will it will turn into a high street, but it won't be necessarily a high street for we. Right. The whole area has been missed opportunity. Yeah, the whole area has been G'd. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I. I so we that. should explain when we say G'd, we mean gentrified, mm. and not in a good way. Yeah. Okay. So okay. watch the space. Okay. Until the next time. Yes. yes. <laughs> this is the tree we. Tree we. Tree we. You know you can go and listen to this podcast on all the platforms and anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, we're going to be playing out with our go-to track. Yes. Stand Tall, Stand by, tall. Stand tall by the amazing Sassander. Till next time. Stand tall. Just listen to your calling, get up, go stand tall. Sometimes the toughest critic is your own self-doubt. But listen, don't be scared, you're not alone. I'll fix your crown when you feel down. Get it, get it, girl. Aim high, the world's your oyster. I wanna see you on a billboard or a poster. Your time is now, be strong. Take your seat at the table. You're more than able. Yeah, you go, girl. Oh, oh, oh.
girl. Get up, stand tall, girl.